Welcome to RevAmp, the revenue amplification podcast powered by DealHub.io. I'm your host, Gideon Thomas, and we will be speaking to some of the most exciting revenue leaders within the community. Hey, this is Barry Muller, guest hosting for Gideon on uh, the RevAmp podcast, and I'm here um, honored and it's really awesome to invite Patrick to, to our podcast today. Um, Patrick is the CEO and co-founder of ProfitWell. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, Patrick? Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I think uh, Gideon was too scared of the conversation we're about to have. No, no, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, so Patrick Campbell, I'm the CEO founder of ProfitWell, like you mentioned. Um, ProfitWell, we build what's called subscription revenue automation products, which is just a fancy way of saying you can plug in your billing system, Stripe, Zora, Recurly, Chargebee, Chargeify, whatever you're using, um, and basically get um, access to a bunch of cool stuff. Um, some of that stuff being free financial metrics. So we give um, really, really absolutely accurate um, real-time uh, reporting for all of your subscription financials. Um, we enrich that data with benchmarks and a whole bunch of things. We have about 30,000 companies using that now. And then the way we make money is we have tools that automatically lower your cancellations and then tools that automatically um, optimize your pricing. And so, yeah, we're, we're pretty pumped um, just in terms of what we're doing. And the whole goal is like, you know, there's all this stuff, especially in revenue operations that should just be automated. Um, not only your reporting, but also in terms of your um churn and your pricing and these types of things that normally people don't think about. And then my personal background um, is in econometrics and math, um, which means I'm a nerd, obviously, um, you know, for better and for worse, probably. Uh, and uh, I started my career, I worked in uh, US intelligence and then at Google, and then I jumped into the startup world and, and founded ProfitWell. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the quick and dirty resume level information, I suppose. Cool. Love that. And how did you come up with the idea of ProfitWell? Is it what it uh, was your original vision what it is today? Uh, no, uh, that's a good question. So I, uh, it, it, frankly, the, the short answer is like a lot of hubris. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the idea in the beginning. Um, I come from kind of a very like bucolic Midwestern background. Uh, I grew up in you know Wisconsin on farms and stuff like that. And it was one of those things where it was kind of interesting because um, when I moved to kind of like the East Coast uh, as a young, ambitious, but also insecure kid, uh, it was one of those things where I was always trying to prove myself, right? And I always needed my learning to just be really, really quick. And so uh, when I worked for the US government um, in the Intel community, I was building you know, models or helping build models to hunt bad guys and gals. And then at Google, I thought, you know, oh, it's not going to be as bureaucratic as the government, um, you know, which my learning curve was flattening. Um, you know, it's going to be fast, fast. And it's like, well, it's a 30,000 person company when I got there. So right. it's a bureaucratic company as well. And so, you know, it, it was great. But then, you know, you kind of feel like empty because you're like, if I can't be at happy at Google, like, can I ever be happy? Right. Because they, you know, pay you way too much for what you're doing. And, but I was like, you know, the ambitious kid. And so I jumped into the startup scene. And to make a long story shorter, uh, I worked on pricing at this company called Gemvara, uh, which is this uh, jewelry company is a startup that their whole thing is you could customize the type of stone as well as the type of metal that you would get in the ring or whatever you were ordering. Uh, and what was cool about that is, um, you know, with pricing, we would see these like big swings based off little things that we would do. 
And I kind of started, you know, putting two and two together and also wasn't enamored by the culture. You know, you're seeing a theme here. I think it's more me than it was them. Um, And all of a sudden was like, oh, they gave it to like an entry level plus kid, you know, that they're not paying that much. We're seeing these giant swings and they don't know anything about this. Right. And so there's this like kind of sweet spot where I was like ready to start something because I didn't have a mortgage didn't have kids, these types of things. And so it was like, if not now, when, right. And so jumped out, um, and started working 18 hours a day on pricing. And then over time, you know, I can get into like where the rest of the products came from, but over time it morphed into, um, you know, the subscription revenue automation thesis that, you know, we've, we've been rocking ever since. So yeah, that's the, again, pretty long, but also (laughs) quick version of, you know, how it all came to. Cool. Love that. Um, I, I, Wisconsin, I went to, I don't know if you've heard of the city Wild Rose. I went to camp uh, there oh, cool. 10 years ago. And then we like doubled the population size uh, when we went there. Yeah, uh, there's a lot so, of camps up there uh, right. up in the central and northern Wisconsin. So that's yeah. cool. Some good times when we went to Lambo, but that's for a different day. Um, yeah, that's cool. So yeah, so super interesting. I think um, for our listeners, if you haven't checked out ProfitWell, they um, create amazing content. And uh, from what I've heard, also amazing services and the product is awesome. I think 30,000 people use it. So um, check it out. Um, and Patrick also, he has um, some of his own podcasts. So if you're looking to learn about pricing and everything um, else around that world, uh, you definitely have to check out um, the ProfitWell website and their media. So um, I've been enjoying it for the past few years. So thanks for producing that stuff. Thanks, man. Um, that means a lot. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I think one thing that is really interesting, I'd love to hear about who you um, profit well sells to, who like falls under the world of pricing. Um, I'm sure the answer is different for different size companies. Um, yeah. So maybe you can even talk about the the scaling startup versus the larger yeah. and the debate. And I'm sure it's also different at each company. So, um, yeah. So. We're, we're a multi-product company and mm-hmm. one of those products is free. So it makes everything. And we're doing this before we're hundred million in revenue. Most people don't right. do multi-product until hundred million and beyond, but I think it's, it's going to be really, it already is really important to a lot of brands to start doing that earlier. Um, I think the long and short of it is, you know, all of our products serve a little bit of a different customer, um, especially when you split things on a, um, the size basis, like you said. So early stage and let's say early stage is anything up to, 20 million, which, you know, some people um, argue with that distinction, but there it's a lot of like, you know, for our metrics product, it's like the CEO product leader. It kind of depends on who like found us and who needs the data because we provide all types of data. So all of a sudden they come in and it's like, oh, cool. I get this data. And then the rest of the team gets joined and they get their data and so on and so forth. So that one's kind of all over the place. And as it scales, um, I I think that that occurs as well. So as we get into really large companies, it starts to turn into a little bit more specific around product marketing um, and finance. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes what will happen is, is we'll, we'll have like an engineering or like a BI person because our strength is in that free product. We clean the data mm-hmm. and then basically we push everything um, to wherever you want it through our APIs. And so a lot of people use it that way, but on our paid products, it's a little more straightforward. Um, so for retain um, the churn reduction product, um, it's product, customer success sometimes. 
and, or like sometimes like finance, you know, or ops, you know, people who are kind of like looking at, oh my God, this is a problem with our credit cards and all this other fun stuff. Um, so we kind of attack that um, more and more it's becoming RevOps in like the world of B2B. Um, but RevOps, not to say something incendiary here, but a lot of times RevOps has become like sales ops or just with a different name. And I think that like, it's still kind of morphing, right? It's still kind of morphing like what RevOps is supposed to be. Um, and for what it's worth, it should not just be sales ops. It should be sales, marketing and customer success ops. But sometimes like we're like, oh, well, let's just rename it and we'll let the guy who ran sales ops do it and not really focus on anything else but sales ops, right? Um, in terms of pricing, it's very similar. It's head of marketing, head of product typically, and more and more a little bit of RevOps. Um, but I think that RevOps and product marketing um, and even marketing kind of have a little bit of a battle. And the battle with pricing, it doesn't really matter, but it's one of those things that like, it just depends on who's kind of closer to the customer research and who's going to be closer to like implementation. And pricing, I would argue more so than churn reduction is a little bit of a team sport because everyone's going to be involved in some case. And so who actually is making the decision is, it's not unimportant because I think a lot of people, that's what they miss with pricing is they don't have someone make a decision, but who actually is making the decision is, is not necessarily the most important thing as, as kind of the process overall, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and as you know, this uh, most of our listeners are operations people. I think a lot of people can relate to the sales op rev ops debate. Um, I know yeah. we, we were talking about that this week um, internally. Um, so that's interesting that you brought that up. Um, so you mentioned that there's a lot of players that talk in the pricing. So when you see that the RevOps, maybe they're sometimes they are a decision maker, sometimes they're not a decision maker, but when they um, are not a decision maker, what role do you see them playing with generally? And um, do you see that things have been changing recently um, as the name yeah. becomes RevOps? or things are still uh, more stagnant on that side? Yeah, so with RevOps, and, and again, it, it's more things. So apologies if someone's like, you're totally wrong. Um, it's not because <laughs> of I'm trying to be wrong or trying to have a strong opinion. It's just, this is kind of what I'm seeing. Like mm -hmm. a lot of RevOps, it's, it's tooling and reporting. And then it almost acts as like a revenue, <laughs> this is a weird thing to say because growth <laughs> is also revenue focused, but like a revenue focused growth person, right? So what that means is like every single quarter, there's some like iteration that they should, in my opinion, should, and should be more than just once a quarter, but some order, some sort of like focus area or iteration that's focused on like dev productivity, customer success productivity, or not dev, but uh, AE productivity, these types of things. And so I think when it comes to pricing, if you have a proper RevOps function, RevOps is probably going to be mostly in charge of like implementation. That doesn't mean that they're like making the decision of what to do. And the reason I make that distinction is because if your RevOps organization is just sales ops by a different name, typically sales should not be in charge of what to do with pricing. They're a heavy influencer. They should be on board with it or at least disagreeing, committing to it. But the incentives typically aren't aligned um, to change pricing dramatically or to even raise prices, right? And so RevOps definitely involved in implementation, but not necessarily like the decision maker when it comes to pricing, unless they have a, a more proper, I would say, RevOps function where the person's a little bit more independent and sees the entire field when it comes to um, you know, sales, marketing, and of course, customer success. Um, and, and the implication there, if it's not obvious, is that is there's some things that if you're very sales oriented, you can make with pricing 
that end up kind of dumping a problem onto customer success or dumping a problem on the product that you might be like, oh my gosh, you know, congratulations, we hit our number. But then all of a sudden those people are churning within two months um, or, you know, they're in. So that's hopefully a little helpful to folks, but it's, it's less about like what is right. It's more about just aligning how your company is structured to making the best decision. And this is why we talk a lot about pricing committees, which I know it, it's a boring point, but I see so many companies do terrible with pricing because they either do it in a vacuum where the product marketer or the product person goes off, does the research and is like, we're going to do this. And then the salesperson's like, no, we're not. And then all of a sudden there's eight weeks added to it. And then another person gets involved. So I think you need to have like, you know, I call them the four horsemen, which are typically sales, marketing, finance, and, um, and uh, sales um, in the, in the same room and then add like customer success or product marketing, if you're a little more um, sophisticated as an organization and then rev ops, obviously, if you have that as well, and then you have someone like a marketing manager or product manager for 20% of his or her time, go off, do the research, bring it back to the committee, committee debates it, go back, get more data, come back. All of a sudden committee, there's a decision maker. One person makes a decision everyone gets on board with it. And then everyone like moves forward with implementation. That process is more important than like who's actually in charge. Although who's in charge is, you know, important just because of the incentive. So hopefully that's helpful. Right. For sure. Is there anything that I have a few follow-up questions. Is there anything that a RevOps professional could bring to that committee that uh, maybe someone else isn't, isn't thinking about? I'm thinking we we talked about reporting before Um, who's, is there numbers that they might have like that other people don't have or that they're thinking about it like discounts or it could be margins, uh, maybe only the C-suite, for example, and know the margins yeah. and the RevOps professional? Yeah, totally. I think, again, if you have a proper RevOps organization, mm-hmm. that person or team is probably the data layer for mm-hmm. revenue, right? And so they're the ones bringing this forward. And also like, kind of version control on pricing, right? Because the thing that a lot of people don't realize is you should be changing something about your pricing every single quarter, if not every single month, if you're very sophisticated. And this doesn't mean like you're raising or lowering your price point every month or every quarter. It means that one quarter you're doing localization, one quarter you're doing add-ons, another quarter you're doing your discount strategy and so on and so forth. Um, It's a lever just like, you know, acquiring customers and just like retaining customers. It's so, so crucial. And so the long and short of it is you want to make sure that RevOps is bringing that data layer and also kind of like understanding like, well, we did that three months ago and we noticed this, this is similar, right? Like they're kind of that data and analyst voice. Um, But then also from a tooling perspective, like RevOps can make sure that once a pricing change is ready, it doesn't take months to implement it. This is a huge thing. This is why I always like tell larger companies to start with something like localization, right? Where you update your currency and, and, and maybe even your price, depending on the location of people, mm-hmm. uh, your, your leads coming in. And the reason is, is because ultimately what ends up happening is um, it's a good gain. Like you'll make more money. Um, it's not the biggest gain out of the pricing you know, toolbox, but it also forces you to like get a quick win because it's not a complicated thing to get agreement on as a group, as your committee. And the second thing, and again, it's not a vote. Like I want to be super clear when I say committee, I'm not saying it's a vote, but it's, it's a quick thing for everyone to be like, yep, sounds good. So you can like move quickly and like not have to debate. And then the third thing is, is it forces you to get your tech stack in order because I've seen, you know, with our pricing product, we have the most elegant, perfect data saying that a change should be made like dead to rights. It makes perfect sense. But 
the engineering team goes, what's going to cost us somewhere around $500,000 to implement. Mm. We're like, what? And it's like, well, our billing system was built 10 years ago and we haven't done this or we haven't done that. So like, we have to kind of debate, do we want to move engineering resources off versus this thing that we're building? And it's like the worst conversation, your tooling and your, even like your, your accounting practices to kind of add that to it should never, ever influence how you price and how fast or quickly you move on, you know, pricing experimentation. And, and that's where RevOps can come to play, which is having the data to understand what works, what's going to work, what's not going to work, all the other things, and then also making sure that things run smoothly. Um, and also, like I already alluded to this, but bringing the holistic perspective. Right. Like, there's very few people in the company, and RevOps is uniquely um, positioned where it's like, hey, sales guy or gal, like I know you really like this idea, but when we do this calculation, we realize that it's going to affect retention this way, and that doesn't make any sense. Like you're going to acquire a bunch of customers that are just going to churn, right? You need someone saying stuff like that because most organizations don't have that unless it's like the product and the salesperson debating when it's better to have like that, that central oracle to kind of use a terrible metaphor, um, you know, who look into everything. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. Um, where to go from there? I think the tech stack was something interesting. Have you seen um, what's the difference between a company that can change the pricing quickly? Are they using specific tools, specific types of tools? Um, and the companies that are yeah. moving super slow and they're expensive to change. Yeah. So I think, um, so for one, uh, having a good subscription, if you're a subscription company, but even if you're not having like a good billing system or subscription management system. Now, when I say that everyone goes, oh my gosh, like they all suck, which <laughs> I, I don't, the thing is, is they don't, the thing with billing is we do not have an appreciation for how difficult the infrastructure is because we think it should just act like our all of our other products our consumer products or something where it's just like i log in i press a button and i watch a movie like on netflix right with billing it's like it's it's a game of like the 99.99999% that many nines which is insane every time you add a nine it just increases the complexity by like an order of magnitude right and so people don't appreciate that like oh you can plug this thing in and literally anyone in the world or anyone within this geographical region can like buy something. We don't appreciate how terribly difficult that is, right? And so, you know, it's the same thing with analytics. This is why Profit was free. The, the, the analytics product is because we don't appreciate how hard it is to get the metric to be accurate. And so we were either going to go up market like most BI tools or we were going to go free, which was ultimately what we did. But long story short, I think for billing, um, having a really good billing system is so important because... Yes, your engineering team isn't going to love it. They're just not. But your ops people will tend to love it because they're like, hey, I don't have to ask engineering to do all this. And that's what we actually see when we look at the NPS scores. NPS scores of like um, billing from an engineering perspective for billing is typically very low. Ops and finance people is typically very high, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's not going to be like a, net, like a Netflix experience or something elegant like that. It's going to be something that's like, like, infrastructure right and so finding the right one and there's a bunch um that you know we wrote a really long blog post and all the ones that are out there with like not quite a review but like just like hey here's what everyone offers so that's a really really big thing and then mm -hmm. on top of that having a good set of analytics and and or bi right i think some people yep. go too far and go like let's buy looker and tableau and all these other things 
The problem with that is that all of a sudden you're walking into a scenario where you're going to have to have two engineers plus like a bunch of other data people like building out all of your reporting and it's not going to be good for years. Like you're, it's going to be okay, probably six to 12 months in, but it's not going to be great. Right. Mm -hmm. So just making sure that like you focus on what are the numbers I need to focus on and getting those right first. And then not like buying a giant BI tool as a false sense of security. Normally when you get to hundred million beyond, you're going to need a big BI tool. So, right. you know, it's not like you're not going to buy it ever, but when you're in the early stages, like use something like Propwell, use like your own queries, use something like that um, in order to get the right data, because the accuracy of the data is more important than like the flexibility of being able to query anything under the sun, because anything under the sun isn't really that important when you're trying to like get to hundred million, let alone beyond hundred million. Right. Right. Cool. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was thinking um, just from personal experience at DealHub, we sell, um, we have a CPQ and some of our customers have talked about that they're able to like localize very quickly or that they're able yep. to um, do it without coding. So I think also like platforms that don't need code that empower the revenue operations professionals that 100%. don't know code. I think that's like uh, pretty important. Um, yeah, and CPQs are huge. Right. Like I, the thing is, is our customers typically they don't need a CPQ because um, their their price points are a bit smaller, not like contracts and stuff like that. But if you're mm -hmm. in that world and not using a CPQ, like you're you're just losing on a lot of things. Um, so it's one of those things that it is really really crucial um, if if you have like more invoice, more deal, kind of like tracking those types of things. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about uh, in this podcast was uh, discounting. Uh, since nice. you guys, I think it's a cool topic. Um, I think it's definitely interesting because I think at least uh, we buy software, I buy software, you buy software, and you see that there's just a different, like there's a price tag, it's maybe closed, not not given on the website. And then automatically you're given a discount or if you do a little uh, fight, you get a discount and it's um, you know, it's something that you don't experience when you go to the store, you, you have the discount beforehand. It's public. You don't, you can't negotiate generally with the cash yeah. register. Um, that's not, you know, there, there are marketplaces that you can, but most places you can't. So I kind of want to hear, um, and we were talking about before about like optimal uh, revenue and, wanted to just hear your thoughts on discounting. I know ProfitWell has um, some content around it. Maybe we could, you could bring yeah. up some of that. So discounting, when talking about discounting, it's really important to understand like the purpose of a discount. And when you get into like the actual academic economic literature or, you know, any pricing theory or actual experiments that have been done, the thing with a discount is that it's supposed to be a nudge right? It's supposed to be a, oh, here's this thing that I kind of already wanted, or like maybe I didn't quite want, but I've thought about wanting in the past. And this is the, this is not the reason, but this is like the nudge to get me to buy the thing. Right. And the problem is, is a lot of us use this in the world of tech as like the thing to kind of bludgeon a lead into the reason that they're buying. Right. And there is a place for that typically in places like retail, 
uh, where you're trying to basically like just from a consumerism standpoint, like think of like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, yep. you know, at least in the States. And I think it's global now as well, where it's like it is. Yeah. all of a sudden it's like, this is the reason that I, I, oh, I didn't need this thing, but it's such a good deal. I might as well buy it. Right. The issue is, is that when you're selling some sort of software, some sort of subscription product, it's not like, hey, I pulled one over on you. You didn't really need this, but you spent the hundred bucks and you got this cool thing. It's something where you're building a relationship. Like the subscription model is the first commerce model in the history of humankind where the relationship uh, with the customers built into how you make money. So if they don't like the product next month, they're not getting the value of it, they're going to leave. And so to kind of tie this back to discounts is like, if you are sitting there and the reason I bought is because of the discount. It's not because I actually was bought into the product, not because I was actually ready to go. I'm going to churn, right? And I might stick around for a year, but it's one of those things that's because you forced me into an annual contract and I never actually get implemented. Now, there's a theory of like, can you do that and maybe activate that person within the first six months or whatever and see the value? Sure, but I wouldn't want to bet on that, right? So we actually have data on this. And so what we found is basically if your discount and this is typically in the world of B2B SaaS, um, if your discount is over about 20%, the churn rate on that cohort doubles. So if you have people that less than 20% discount, people with more than 20% discount, um, normally you're going to see double the churn rate for that latter group. Now we've seen very similar data in uh, the world of retail or subscription e-commerce or even subscription consumers uh, products, um, but typically the threshold is around 30 to 35%. Um, so you can give a 30, 35% discount. Now, why is this a problem? Well, obviously churn is bad, but it's also the signal problem. Uh, your sales team is like so excited because they closed the deal. And you can actually see this in like really bad sales organizations mm -hmm. where during the quarter, they're not doing well, they're not doing well. And then all of a sudden there's this backward bending, you know, curve where they're like, oh, it's all of a sudden the last month they close all their deals and they hit their number. Sometimes they hit more than the number, but that's a lot because of the discounts. And then all of a sudden you look at the, the churn of those customers and you've dumped it on customer success. You've dumped it on the product team because those customers just weren't ready. And customer success slash the product team, they're not there to necessarily sell. Like they're not there to like get the buy-in. They're there to like encourage the buy-in that already existed, right? And just how pernicious of a problem this is. Well, I think it was about 60 to 70% um, out of a, a study we did of about 8,000 different sales folks said that discounting was important, if not very important to their job. And when asked like what the appropriate level of discounting was, that group of, of 70% basically said 50% or more, which is insane if you think about it, right? And you might be asking, well, if I can't convert people with a lower discount, what should I do? Well, you should lower your like list price basically. Right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of other theory. I think discounts, I'm not against discounting to be clear, but it's that nudge. And so discounts should be time boxed. It should not be the life of the account. It should be for the first month or the first term or something like that. Uh, discreet, um, unless you're a discount brand, which some of those exist, um, you shouldn't, shouldn't be on the front page of your website. It should be something that's like, you know, there. And, and ultimately it should be one of those things that like, is an already bought in customer essentially. So I can rant and rave about this for longer, but that's like, that's a basic core of, of right. know, some of the things that we found on this. Yeah. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess like who, okay. So my follow-up for that is who should run, who should run the discounting, like an approval process should it, yeah, and sorry. what information do you need to know in order to approve it? Like we're talking, do you need to know margins? Do you need a, should every, yeah. do you need to know who the competitors are? How detailed should it be? Um, those yeah. kind of questions. Um, 
it's hard. Like I, it, there's not one right answer. I think the thing is, is like, you do want to give reps some level of flexibility, but I think that that level of flexibility should be probably like 10, 15%. Um, and I would even give an accelerator if they close things without a discount, like not anything big, but just like, Hey, if you get a non-discounted, like it depends on how pernicious this is across your team. Right. So at ProfitWell, we like, we have a pay, our, our churn product is completely paid for performance. So we don't really discount because it's like purely based on how well the product does and everyone, you know, if, if it doesn't perform, it's free. Right. Um, and so it's one of those things where like, if you have that type of organization, like you probably don't, we don't really have a discounting process because it's like, it's one-offs, right? Like mm-hmm. one-off here, one-off there. And, and most of the time our sales folks get around it. If discounting is really pernicious, I would work on, you don't even need to like raise your prices. I would just be like, oh, our average discount right now is 20%. Let's just put a, 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 a floor at 10% now or a ceiling in this case. And like, you can't go over 10% unless you go through this big process. And what you'll notice is just a little bit of friction um, all of a sudden results in, oh, our discounting went down, right? Which effectively made our prices go up, right? Um, and so I think like, letting the reps have 10 to 15%. I think once you start going over 15, 20%, you start getting into trouble, which maybe there are reasons to do it, but it should go through some sort of a process. I think RevOps should definitely have a report that is basically looking at this, uh, depending on the size of your organization on a weekly, if not a monthly basis um, or quarterly basis, if you're smaller. And then um, basically they're talking to sales um, about this and then anything over 10, 15%, you know, should, should go to someone who has to approve it basically. Cool. I like that answer. I think it's super interesting. Um, definitely once companies start changing, once start putting guardrails on their discounts, like it changes the culture also. It also gives, I've seen more confidence to sales reps to actually sell without giving a discount. Um, sometimes, for example, companies are interested in, just they think they have to give a discount, like a 30% discount to sell. But then if there's guardrails placed, they realize they could have actually made more money on their on their bonuses because they actually were selling it with only a 10% discount. So I think it's super interesting topic. Yeah. I think um, it's just people don't, it's it's the path of least resistance unless you add some friction. Mm-hmm. Right. Like people just intuitively think like, oh, this is the thing that's going to get the deal rather than being like, what objections do you have? Let's talk through right. those objections and that type of thing. And it's, it's again, like, I think some people who are not in a sales or revenue organization, they're just like, well, salespeople are dumb. Right. You know, and, and like, they, they think the coin operated term is like a very like negative thing. I actually like the coin operated term, like salespeople are coin operated. Right. I actually really like that because it's like, you're just aligning incentives. Right. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to like add a little bit of friction or a little bit of sludge as they sometimes call it to like you getting a higher discount. Okay. Well, I want to get my number. And I don't want to like go through this approval process. So I'm going to offer the 10% and then I'm going to like throw this in, or I'm going to do this other thing or do whatever. Right. And that like, again, like it's, it's using that energy and just directing it in the right way. And this is why sales comp, frankly, which I think RevOps needs to like do a lot with sales comp is so powerful. Like you change it one quarter or one month. And then all of a sudden it's like, Ooh, wow, we saw this number go way up, this number go down. Ooh, we don't want that number going down. So let's adjust it. Right. Um, and that's, what's really, really powerful is like, it's, it's not that sales folks are dumb or anything. It's just that like, you have to align incentives properly. And when you do all of a sudden you get the results you need. Right. No, that's awesome. Um, cool. One thing I wanted to talk back about more was that you mentioned earlier that pricing 
um, should be changed every quarter. That doesn't mean, as you mentioned, uh, you have to change it to $60 to $75 or to $50, your price point. But it also could yep. mean, um, I saw localizations. So maybe you can talk a bit more about localizations. And you mentioned the one or two other things. So I'd love for you to expand on um, that for our RevOps community, yeah. revenue operations. So community. yeah, the, the longest for short is that if you're... Um, the number you should be looking at to see if you're effectively doing something with pricing is your revenue per customer. So you might measure that depends on your size, customer, all these other things. Could be ARPU, ARPA, AC, excuse me, ACV. Doesn't matter how you're measuring it. Obviously, it matters how you measure it for, for your business, but you get what I'm saying. That yeah. number in most organizations is flat, mm-hmm. just flat across the board. If you are doing something with your pricing, that number should be going up over time. Now, It's probably not going up as much as your leads are, these types of things. That's okay because you get higher impact when that number goes up, right? Um, That number can go up 10%. Your leads can go up 30%. You actually might be getting equal, you know, impact in your overall revenue just based on, you know, all kinds of fun things. So the thing is, is that a lot of people think with pricing, like, oh, the only thing I have is this number, this little Mm -hmm. number of like how much I charge. But for most folks, I would argue until you're like 70 to hundred million in revenue, that number does not matter. Let me rephrase. The, the, the specificity of that number does not matter. It, the, you should just know, am I a $10 product? Am I a $50 product? Am I a $1,000 product? That level of specificity matters at that stage. But am I $19 versus $20? Unless you're just going insane with growth, that number does not matter until you get bigger, right? Because just the numbers don't matter until like, yes, a dollar increase. It's not going to matter until you have big numbers, right? And so the thing to kind of keep in mind is like, there's so much more that impacts revenue per customer, right? Um, I can sell different add-ons. I can come out with different add-ons each quarter. I can do localization, like I mentioned. Um, Typically the revenue per customer lift is somewhere between 20 and 30% of those customers coming in because all of a sudden like they trust your product. People like to buy in their own currency. Um, Doesn't matter where they are in the world. Um, And also there's different, you know, purchasing power, right? So like, in the Nordics, um, you should always do your own data here because even though we have a lot of data, the variance is really high depending on the product. But in the Nordics, they're typically willing to pay about 40% more than um, you know the, the folks in the US, for instance. And that controls for that and exchange rates. So it's an apples to apples comparison. There's your value metric, how you charge, um, changing the metric that you charge on, um, changing how much of that metric you give for each tier or each plan, whatever it ends up being. Um, there's your discounting strategy. There's your annual strategy. Like how are you getting people on longer term plans? Um, there's the number, which we talked about ad nauseum. There's um, where you put features. Do you put them for differentiation? Do you put them somewhere else? What does that look like? There's freemium strategies if you haven't done that, um, which is a little bit less about pricing, but you know, still it's there. But the long and short of it is there's so many different things. And when you start working on one thing, it like answers beget more questions, right? So you'll be like, oh, we did this localization thing great, let's make sure our prices are set up for the main regions that we sell into. But we saw this really interesting data point around this. All right, let's do this next study on like, should that feature be in plan B or should it be like taken out as an add-on, right? And, and so on and so forth. Um, so there's just, there's just a lot to like dig into. And I think a lot of people, they don't, um, 
they don't, they don't realize that there's so much with pricing because it's uncomfortable and it's important. So whenever you have something at that intersection of uncomfortable and important, we get all skittish and are like, oh, I don't want to touch it because everyone's <laughs> got an opinion. And it's not that, again, it need to be a rocket scientist. It's just a process like any other thing in your business. It's just most of us are avoiding it because we don't know anything about it. Right. Cool. Um, so I'm going to close with some short questions with some short answers. Uh, this was awesome. Sure. I hope our listeners like enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm sure they did. Um, what's the most interesting, what's the most surprising data point you ever saw from any of the surveys that you guys did? Ooh. <laughs> put you on the spot. Yeah. So our pricing product, the way we feed the data is through surveys. And a lot of people hate surveys because we're terrible as an industry at sending surveys. But Mm -hmm. if you're an actual practitioner of statistics, you know that surveys can be done with reducing bias considerably and all kinds of fun stuff. And so um, we've sent probably about 70 million of these things at this point. Um, I think the most interesting data point... I like tracking data over time. Mm-hmm. Like what is the willingness to pay or what is the value of a certain thing over time? Um, so there's two that come to mind. One is things like priority support. They've gone from being like an add-on to like slowly being expected, mm-hmm. meaning like it's moved in terms of its intensity, like so, meaning support, having good support used to be like a, a luxury and now it's like expected, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is that much of the core things that we're offering in our products, in addition to like the traditional add-ons like integrations and like stuff like that, the willingness to pay has gone down over time. Mm-hmm. And so over the past like 10 years, like, you know, it's these these features or these core types of products that we start building, they tend to, they tend to gone down about 70% in value. And it's not because products are worse today. It's just software used to be magical, you know, 20, 30 years ago, (laughs) 10 years ago, especially. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's lost kind of that sheen because, you know, you used to be able to put a login screen on a database and you were a God. Now, if it doesn't have good support, good design and all these other things, it's, uh, I'm not even gonna give you the time of day. So those are a couple of data points. That's cool. I like that. I noticed that both those data points, um, both those features were, I used to see in more enterprise kind of packaging and now it's even um, you know, now you still have SSO and enterprise, but as you said, it's become more holistic for everyone expects good support. Can't just be the enterprises that get that, uh, super interesting. So, yeah. uh, thanks again, Patrick, for being on our show. We really appreciate it. Uh, go check out profit. Well, and, um, join in, uh, to, to next week's revamp podcast, um, with either Gideon or me. Uh, we hope, um, y'all have a good rest of the day. Uh, or evening or morning Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be there for you. Thanks guys.